greatness of God. So the idea is that in order to bring to the Midas the love, the fear, etc., that happens through his bainus, which is a utilizing of the two faculties of Chachm and Bina. And then the question is, what one should mimisbainen on? What one should ponder, contemplate, reflect, or if you like the word meditate on? And when I was watching the content be, and the content is the greatness of God. That's what it says here, the greatness of God. And last class we spoke about God. And I asked you if you can define God. And can you define God? No. Now, why? Same way you can't define an individual person. Right? If a definition is supposed to isolate and pick out something to the exclusion of all others, okay? so I can define an, an object, okay? although that's not even always easy, but let's just, I can define a book as a book and like define what is it that makes it a book. I could even define a class of, in, a class of people, let's say human beings or men, or Jews, and say, what defines them as a class? But if I were to say, what defines me as me? In other words, what is something that is true of me, only true of me, not true of anybody else, and actually captures something significant about what it is to be me? Not just like an arbitrary thing like Rabbi Kaufman is the person who's sitting in this chair at this particular moment, which is, granted, only true of me, but is quite incidental, and if it wouldn't be true, I would still be me. So something that is necessarily true of me and only me. And what you'll happen is, as you rack your brain to try and come with it, the basically the only thing you can come up with is, you, when you say I, who do you mean? Mm-hmm. Yourself and no one else. So that's what makes you distinctly you. <laughs> and that, that's not a, that's, that, that, that is a point of reference, it's not a definition. <coughs> so when we speak about someone as opposed to something, there is no real concept of definition. Yeah. If you're using their proper name, you're doing neither. Okay. What you're doing is you're acknowledging that they are someone and trying to draw attention to them as an individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I have a son. I'm Lubavitch, so of course my son's name is Mendel. Mendel. Right. So when I say Mendel, right, I am not describing him. Right? You know nothing about him because his name is Mendel, right? You say, well, you know that he's from the Lubavitch family. Actually, Mendel's not from the Lubavitch family, right? So that even doesn't tell... Right? You know, his name is Mendel. But what it means is that assuming there's no other Mendels in the room or in the area or in the context in which I'm speaking and I say Mendel, I'm referring to that someone as opposed to a different someone. And if he's present and aware, right, it, it draws his attention. Right? So it is a way of, of referencing or or drawing out attention to himself, but it's not really a definition or a description. Okay. So, the, the, the reason why this is very important, okay, is we all are familiar, hopefully, with the basic difference between someone and something, objects versus other beings. So let's, let's think of it um, using the famous Musser parable or I don't know if it's a parable, but whatever. Um, the, the man is eating fish, and someone says, well, why are you eating the fish? They say, well, I love fish. And they say, well, if you loved the fish, you wouldn't have killed it and need to eat it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is that true? 
keep in mind I'm the one to bring this up, so you need to get a twist here. Is that true? If you love the fish, you wouldn't kill and eat it? Oh, I do love the fish. The part of the fish I love is the way it feels when I eat it. That's the part of the fish I love, right? I, right? I love the fish as an object. And the way you love an object is not the way you love someone. Right? Or if you're loving someone like an object, that's disturbing. Okay? What's the difference between loving someone and loving an object? Before we move forward. Or respecting someone and respecting an object. Or any emotion towards an object versus an object towards someone. What, what's the critical difference? You. If I love an object, who's the only one whose experience matters in this equation? Mm-hmm. If I'm loving someone, the fact that they have their own experience of things, that matters. Just to give you a very simple example, if someone says that I, I want to be close to you, and so they physically attack, like sit next to you all the time, right? that's their notion of being close to you. In their mind, are you a someone or a something? something. You're a something. Right? Because, right, as we all know from interpersonal relationships, right? Being close to someone means that on some level, it's not just that I feel close to you, but I feel like that's reciprocated. You feel close back, right? There's that, right? There's some element of mutual subjectivity. I'm experiencing, you're experiencing, and somehow that has a different kind of a quality, a different kind of an experience, okay? So when we speak about emotions towards Hashem, here's a very interesting question. Is Hashem an object or is Hashem a someone? Like before we even get into you know, more specifically, the idea of greatness of Hashem and how that creates emotions at all, is Hashem someone or something? So, I had a uh, friend. I mean, I guess he's still my friend. But we don't talk very much because he's not around here and very bad at communicating people long distances. But he was getting his PhD in Jewish philosophy. And um, one time on Simcha Torah, um, which Simcha Torah is always a nice time to talk to people in Lubavitch because tends to be people tend to be more open because um, the men have been drinking and so people tend to say things. Um, although you need to like not be overly sensitive to that time. So I asked him how it's going. And he said, well, he's taking three classes. It was like the last year at classes in his PhD program in Jewish philosophy. Um, and he said, the, uh, he told me what the... Th- the three of the classes were, and I don't remember what they were. They were just on Jewish philosophy, taught by Jewish professors. And he said, eh, whatever, like, you know, whatever. Subject, you learn it, whatever. The real problem is my fourth class. So what's the fourth class? He says, the fourth class is taught by, is about the non-Jewish philosopher, Rene Descartes. And the problem is keeping Descartes out of my davening. Mm-hmm. See, what's the problem? Is that the way the teacher was teaching Descartes and the way... Um, the class was about Descartes is that unlike this being just like some arcane abstract idea it was like actually relevant ideas pertinent to how you should experience reality and that was um, to use his words infecting the way he thought about God I didn't like it Um, what was the thing that he didn't like specifically the thing that he didn't like is that is that is that um, 
God was being reduced to some kind of an explanatory principle, an idea, a concept, and not someone. I'm not getting into Descartes' philosophy. But one of the things that comes out of Descartes' philosophy is when Descartes speaks about God, he speaks about God as an idea, as a concept, as something that it must exist in order to make certain things make sense. And that you can't, like, if you start relating, thinking about God that way, then that's not someone, and that really messes with the whole, like, religious thing. And this is actually a problem. I, I had a similar once many years ago, one of the shluchas asked me a question, which I don't remember what the question was. And because I'm a rabbi, what did I do? What do rabbis do when you ask them a question? Sorry. They ask you a question. So I asked her a question. I said, well, well, well tell, me, tell, tell, me, tell me what God is. Which is a trap, by the way. You should know that. And she said, well, God is the one that gave us the Torah. Okay. But what does that mean in her mind? What's the, what, what's the, what's the thing that she's like, focusing on that's the groundwork that she's relating to? Torah. Now, it happens to be that if Torah has any legitimacy, it has to come from somewhere, right? So then God is just the thing that... God is the excuse that you have to be religious. But is that... that, that that's, not, that's not someone. That's not, that's not someone I can have a, a relationship with. Right. You ever heard of gravity? Yeah. What's gravity? What? Okay, now, who discovered gravity? So that means before Newton, no one realized there was something that pulls things down? So then that's not gravity, right? Before Newton, everyone knew things fall, and there's something that makes them fall. So Newton's famous for giving it a name. Before, like, what shall we call thee? And Newton's like, we'll call it gravity. And it's like, yay! Yeah. So I'll answer you after I finish this little explanation. Yeah. In your fish example, is a fish a thing or a fish? Fish is a thing. In your definition of a person, it's something or someone who has their own experiences. Well, a fish also has their own experiences. That's true. Maybe. Let's go with that as a point of, uh, let's go with that for purposes of argument. In which case, that's exactly the point the other person makes, is that if you love the fish as a someone, you wouldn't kill it. But his answer is, I do love the fish. I love the fish as a, as a something. Yeah. What did Newton discover? You guys did go to high school. Formula. Newton discovered a way to describe the way the thing that pulls things down, the way it pulls things down. That's what he did. He discovered that if I know how heavy one thing is and how heavy the other thing is and how far apart they are, then I can tell you how quickly it's going to fall down. Yeah, and he gave a name for that way of understanding it called gravity and I was like woo yay actually that's not really what happened he got lamb blasted for all sorts of interesting things but anyway the point is all he did was come up with something he, ha- he, 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 he has an explanatory principle there's a, there's a phenomenon in reality and I gave it a name and a description to the thing that can explain what I experience that's a kind of objectification 
So the in Hasidus especially, the idea is that you are someone who's going to have a relationship with God who is a someone. So if you're thinking about God, first and foremost, we're talking about thinking about God as someone and not as something. Now, sometimes people, um, the same way we can treat someone as something in our minds, we can also do the reverse, which is treat something as if it's someone, right? Um, there's a lot of jokes about how men have relationships with their cars and their guns. And this idea of they, they're anthropomorphizing, right? They're ascribing characteristics to them as if they're someone. You can usually tell because then they get the pronoun of what? Which pronoun do they she. get? She, right? The gun is a she and the car is a she and the ship is a she, right? Okay, but, but, but we all understand that that's a product of their mind. That's not in reality, right? Okay. By the way, we do this all the time with, uh, with, with, with smartphones, mm-hmm. right? I, it really annoys me, this is one of my personal pet peeves, when people describe the, the voice on their smartphone as a he or a she. Siri? Yeah. <laughs> or that they, or, <laughs> no. It's, it's, that's with the, choosing it. Yeah, the it, it is an it, it is an object. It does things. It 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 doesn't it, it doesn't find it, it it doesn't like me or not like me. You say, hey, it doesn't. Yeah, Siri doesn't like me. Siri 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 doesn't have subjective awareness to like or dislike. That's like saying this cup of coffee doesn't like you. It's just very sophisticated. So it so there is this issue, and I don't want to make this, which is that there is always the possibility that the way we experience something in our minds doesn't match reality. This goes back to what we spoke earlier about that prop. Seichel. Seichel allows us to perceive the immature reality as it really is. So if we have proper Seichel, that would mean we relate to some things as some things and some ones as some ones. But because our Seichel is not always proper, we sometimes relate to some things as some ones and some ones as some things. Okay. Um, which is problematic. Okay. So the idea here is that there has to be we're, we're, God is someone. Okay. And now this creates a problem because that means you can't think about God. Like, do this, yeah? So remember, what's the one thing about me that's truly me? That when I say I, it means me, and if you want to refer to that same entity, you need to say you, or he, or use my proper name if you want to pick me up from a group, right? Okay. So now I want you to think about myself. What are you going to think about? But my character traits aren't me, right? Other people have similar character traits. Oh, ah, so there's this concept called greatness. So what is greatness? So greatness with objects is pretty simple. Greatness with objects is like, some cups are better than other cups. Is everybody animal farm? Yeah. All animals are equal. Some are equal than others. That's right. All cups are cups, but some cups are better at being cups than other cups. Yeah? Some compu- all computers are computers, but some computers are better at being computers, right? So we can make this as greater... Like you just you have some standard of measurement of what makes something more worthwhile. You say some measure higher and some measure lower, right? Okay, but that's a kind of an objectification of things. How do you have greatness in someone? How do you say this this one is greater than that one? And I'm not objectifying them. In other words, this is this goes back to the question I told you before. If someone at, if, if you ask your spouse or your spouse asks you why do you love me, you have a problem, right? 
Because if you say, I love you for quality X, oh, oh, it's just for quality X. That's it. You say, oh, there's no reason. Just, just for your very essence. Like, so you have no good answer. So I'm just a generic someone. Right? Greatness means that something has, carries more weight, has more worth, yeah? measures higher in some way yeah. of evaluating it. But how, are you, how do you have greatness? How can you say someone is greater than someone else? Like, what does that mean? So here's going to be a rule that when we talk about God and Chassidus, we have to make sure that we understand what we're saying. We measure that against knowing that what we're saying makes sense in the context of interpersonal relationships with people. And then we try and abstract to God. So what makes somebody greater than somebody else? Yeah. It's always going to be subjective. The same with the cup. How do you decide one cup is better than another? If I want to keep it very cold, so maybe I want an insulated cup. If I want something that's handmade, so I want something that's a potter made. Like, there's no better cup. It matters what, depends on what I prioritize. So, so I, I, I want to take what you're saying and change it slightly so that it fits more with my preconceived notions of reality. There is a there is there is something um, that people usually conflate, which is the fact that something has a pluralistic aspect to it, to the mat- fact that it's just a matter of personal preference. If you tell me that some cups are better than other cups because they're good for holding hot things, and other cups are better than other cups because they're good for their beauty, right? And you say, and therefore I can't tell you objectively which is the best cup. What I would say is actually what you've just discovered is that most systems of value are pluralistic and they have many dimensions of value. But they're not arbitrary. For instance, if I were to say, you know what makes, you know what makes a particular cup really good? It's that it has a hole in it so that the, so that the water leaks out while I'm trying to drink it. I would say at that point what you've done is you've taken this quality of leaking and showing by showing that that's what you found in a cup, saying that you're now using the word cup in a way nobody else is using the word cup, and, and now all intelligibility is lost. If you say being a cup has many things, and they don't, and, 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 and you could excel in one and not at the other, maybe even they come expensive the other. For instance, the convenience of a cup, right? And the fact that it's not heavy, it's always accessible, yeah, you don't have to carry it around with you after you're done with it usually comes at the expense of other things like durability, beauty, right? But I think most of us understand, we think of things that help bring out what it is to be a cup. We could think of ease of use, um, convenience, beauty, durability, but leakage is not a kind of a thing that we associate with being a cup. So now, the more accurate, in my mind, way of saying this is saying that some things don't have a single dimension of greatness, they're pluralistic. But then it's not arbitrary. You still have to pick one of them. So if you say music, right? There's a lot of things that make one piece of music greater than another. It's popularity. That's, that's, you know, clearly, if many people like the music, right? that does say something about the music. There's a piece of music that nobody likes. One person. There's a piece of music that a lot of... So something about this music makes it very appealing to large numbers of people. But then there's another thing, which is um, the how... Um, how much depth is contained in that music, how much, how much emotion and human experience is contained in the music, which may be an entirely different aspect of it. It may be correlated, it may not be correlated, it may be actually inversely correlated, that one, as one excels the other. And figuring that stuff out is like what philosophers do all the time. But the, the thing that's very important is that you can't just make it a, mat, you can't just make it a matter of, of pure subjectivity, because then what you're doing is you're saying there's no objective reality to anything. And certainly in the context of religion, that won't work. 
Um, th- this shows up a lot of places in halacha, just to give you one of my favorite examples. When, um, there's a concept in halacha that one has to dress in a respect, respectable manner, a manner of kavod. Okay? Now, uh, and depending on the circumstance, so for instance, when one davens, when one's praying, one has to dress in a more respectful manner. Um, at all times, there's different... Okay, now... So one of the, so so what is what is the what is the sta- how do you figure out what's considered a respectful manner of dress? Like what does it say in, in, in the code of Jewish law? Anyone know? But it says it says what's the what's the standard? The standard is that you would what what would what would be appropriate to wear? What, in front of a king. You don't have kings, an important meeting, a dignitary, whatever the case might be. Okay. There's a different thing that they're just giving respectful all the time, which is would you open the door in that way? That's a different standard. That's brought in Achreinu. Uh, so now here's the question. If someone comes and says, you know, I would, I would walk around in my underclothes in front of the king. Does that mean now it's halachically permissible for them to daven in their underclothes? Why not? Isn't it say that the standard is what you would wear in front of a king? Right, it's right. In other words, we look at society, a society, we say, in as much as that a society has a standard of dignity and honor and respect and, 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 and all of that, in that society, what are considered to be appropriate? So, for instance, an example is brought in, in the Code of Jewish Law. It's not a practical law class. So don't ask me any follow ups about what the real law is today. But um, in, in, in the 1500s, if you, are, if you lived in Europe, you're not allowed to daven wearing sandals, you're not allowed to pray wearing sandals. But if you live in the Middle East, you are. Why? Because the Middle East, the king wears sandals. And in Europe, you would never meet a king in sandals, right? So you say, I would, wear the, I would meet the king in sandals. But that just shows that you have no sensitivity to this concept. It doesn't mean that you've picked up on a different aspect of it. Now, that's not always an easy thing to debate with another person. Okay? So you're absolutely right to say that, the, that, that greatness can be pluralistic and multifaceted. And there isn't therefore one greatest. There could be many greatest. But there is still something that, no, that's, just, that's not an example of greatness. That's just, you've got it all wrong. Right? Someone says, what makes this music really good is that when this music plays, um, I, I start having an epileptic seizure. So like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think we have to have some other discussions, right? That's not, that's not, a, that's not, something, that's not something that expresses greatness in music. Popularity, maybe. Depth. Um, complexity, I mean, there's all sorts of things, and again, philosophers of any particular thing will debate exactly what are the standards of greatness in that thing. Right. By the way, this is an issue that shows up in morality while we're on the topic. Um, most people intuitively have a sense that if something causes harm, then there's an element of immorality to it, yeah? You have that, that yeah, like, harm, all things being equal, causing harm is immoral. Yeah. So usually, if that's your parameter, the only way it's moral to cause harm is if by causing harm, you're somehow averting a greater harm. Okay. Does that mean that's the only standard of morality, is, is what causes or reduces harm? So if you, for instance, one of the issues we have when you go through Torah, there's a lot of things in Torah, a lot of laws that are not harm-based. For instance, there's a whole concept in Torah called purity. But somehow things should be pure, things should be sacred. And defiling what is pure and sacred is immoral. Who gets harmed by that? 
not necessarily anybody, but it has a moral value, and, and, and there, it's pluralistic in the sense one can't be reduced to the other. So somebody that doesn't appreciate that just doesn't get it. It's like there's some snobs when it comes to music and they don't care how many people like it. Popularity doesn't tell you anything about the music. Like try arguing with them that, well, if, if everyone on earth is humming the tune, that, that does say something about the music. But no, that's not a, that doesn't tell me anything about the greatness of the music. So there's a problem of pure plurality of greatness. But we don't want to move that all the way to just it's a free-for-all. Okay. Which, by the way, now means God could be great in pluralistic ways. That's true. People can be great in pluralistic ways. But... How do, how do we avoid the problem of the greatness not just being objectification? Because aren't you measuring? Whatever way you're doing, you're measuring them in some sense. Intelligence, beauty, charisma, integrity, whatever it is, you're measuring them in some standards. So aren't you just valuing that thing? Kid comes home from school and says, look at the project I did. And you're a parent, right? So one of your jobs as parents is to provide positive reinforcement to your children and validation. Okay? It's in the job description. If you don't like it, don't get married. So how do you then come home with this project and now you won't need to, you know, positive reinforcement, validation. What do you say? Good job. <laughs> the other parents are like, that is not gonna work. That is not okay. <laughs> Like, that's what parents do, but that's not really fulfilling your job description. <laughs> that's like taking the car to the mechanic and saying, like, my car doesn't work. It's like, bummer. <laughs> that's not why I took it for. Like, like yes, that, you did respond to what I said, but you didn't help the situation by doing that. <laughs> like, wow, I love the colors that you used. You went so long. You have to actually... You have to actually... Find something specific. It's actually hard. You have to find something specific, number one. This specific thing has to be something that you can genuinely see as a good thing, as a worthy thing, as a positive thing. Because if you don't, they'll at least unconsciously pick up on it. And it has to be some means by which they see themselves positively reflected there. Three. Three characteristics. First thing is, you have to be specific, right? So like my two-year-old comes home, right? It, it's really not hard because my two-year-old is very unsophisticated, right? So identifying the color of his scribble, right? Um, and noticing that the color is even, which is, you know, is an impressive thing. And, you know, color is not like really dark over here. He's able to like make the whole paper nice equal orange, <laughs> right? Um, okay. But then when you get to like a seven-year-old, you can't say, there's orange on the paper that doesn't work. So it has to be something specific. It has to be something that you can see the value in and they and, 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 and that you're seeing the value in actually um, resonates with some way they see themselves in a positive light. Either they already do or that they would. Okay? This is one of the reasons why if like someone is really down about a particular thing, you ever see this with kids? Like they, they, they come like this is this is I, I, th this project is horrible. It's, 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 not, it's not pretty, it's, it's, it's not good, it's not nice, and the parents, but, but look, you colored in the lines, you do this, and you try like, to convince them that the project is beautiful. How does that go? Unsuccessful. It's unsuccessful, because it doesn't have a third thing. What you're saying doesn't anywhere reflect back on their experience of what they did. 
neither their actual experience nor their potential experience. So it has to be something specific, something that you actually objectively see as, a, as like a positive thing, at least on some level. It has to register on the positive side rather than the negative side. And it also has to be something that they feel validated. They feel like they were seen in it. Match it what you're saying, when you say it, resonates with their own subjective experience. If they worked hard on something, and you, and you say, wow, I can see how hard you worked on it, right? Well, hard work is a specific thing, especially if you can be more specific about hard work. And it's something they value, and it's something you value. This is actually hard to do, especially when you have more than one child, because guess what? What, what one child sees as a valuable expression of the self is not what another child does. And by the way, this is true not just with your children, with anybody. Okay? If you want to be able to see something that makes somebody great in a way that you're not objectifying, it has to be a concrete thing. Not, it can't be generic. It, ha- it, has to be, right? it has to be something specific. That's the problem. Why do you love me? Because of your essence. Okay, well, that, that, that's meaningless. You didn't tell me anything. But it, all, and it has to be something you genuinely value, you genuinely think is a, is a worthy thing, you genuinely think is an admirable thing, a, 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 a significant thing. And it also has to be something that they subjectively see as a window into their value. So that they feel that they've been seen, not just that you're past pasting something onto them. One of the interesting things that I've discovered as being a father of girls is that you have to be aware of this. Because like, originally I was very nervous of telling my, my girls that they look pretty because one would think that's like an objectification. Now, why would I think that? No. Two things. Right, because either my daughter, so like, it doesn't matter, like on some fundamental level, like, like that's not what I value in them, A. And B, I don't, like if someone were to tell me that I'm good looking, it would be like, what? Like it's not part of, like it's part of how I think about myself at all. It's just not a, it doesn't register. So then like, it seems like an objectification. But then it takes a minute to, not a minute, it takes longer to realize that, wait a minute, that is actually some way that they see themselves. So there's an issue of everything being in proportion. Yeah. But if my daughter is putting effort into, into looking, as she puts it, yafe, then, 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 then yes, I should see that, yes, she's yafe, she's beautiful. And this is the this this ability to appreciate the greatness of someone is actually it's actually I mean some people are intuitively better and some people have a harder time with it, but it's something that actually is a necessary thing to to work on as you want to have better relationships with any person is to figure out what about them is is a positive quality that's specific enough that I'm I'm not just saying something bland and generic or even thinking about something something that I actually. I actually can value. And if they were to be aware that that's what I value, then they would feel validated, they'd feel seen, because that's something that they value in themselves. And by the way, as relationships change, these things change. So for instance, if you value one of your friends um, through their humor, as that relationship gets deeper, if there's still the same amount of weight put on the humor, there's something that seems odd about it. Because 
as the person is, is because as much as they might value how funny they are, right? That is not the deepest things about themselves that they value. They're the deepest modes of self-expression that they have usually. And as a relationship gets deeper, you have to value things that are on that deeper level. This is why, you know, a person could be insulted or put off or feel objectified by one person praising them about something and completely feel validated by another person praising them because that other person has a more remote relationship. You don't expect them to see that deep into you. You don't expect them to pick up on the stuff that you really value in yourself on a more intimate level. And this person, you have this expectation of a deeper relationship, that they see you in a more intimate way. They know you in a more personal way, and so they should be valuing things on a deeper level. And if they don't, then that feels like you're not really being seen. Okay. So, let's say you have a kid. Use this just as, a, as an analogy. Let's say you have a kid, and they're really good at something. And the thing they're really good at is not something you value at all. So, what has to happen? You have to learn to value that thing. And not just to do a favor to the kid, like you really have to value it. Because once you really value it, then you can actually see the kid, then that becomes a window into the, into the grid, and that becomes some way of actually, um, what's often called the is the vessel, it's a means by which you can actually um, connect to them in your own mind. You can actually value them. Um, now, usually your intention to do that is because you already value them for being your child, right? So you want to have this more um, rich relationship. I heard a great story of the Rebbe, which I think highlights this point. And I'm only going to tell you half the story because I only want to tell you the half that is about this point and not ruin it with the other half, even the other half is pretty interesting as well. So this story took place before the Rebbe was Rebbe. When the Rebbe was, uh, it, this was in New York in the 1940s, and um, the previous Rebbe lived in 770 Eastern Parkway, and that's where the Rebbe worked. Um, as the previous Rebbe's secretary, running all the Chabad organizations. And the Rebbe would walk um, to 770 every day. Now, set, for those of you who have not been to Crown Heights, there's a, um, it's a, it's a park, Eastern Parkway is an actual parkway. So it has a service road, and then an island, and then six lanes, and then another island, and a service road. And apparently in the 40s, near 770, there was like a little park on the island, like a little jungle gym for kids, which is not there now anymore. And benches. And there was a man, a Jewish man, who used to sit on the bench, read the newspaper every day. They would walk by, and they would be friendly, exchange a few words. Um, and this man had a granddaughter. His, he, from what I understand, he was religious. I don't know how, it was the 40s, I don't know how late, you know. But he was religious. His kids weren't religious. And they, they told their, their little daughter, their six, seven-year-old daughter, that rabbis are very scary people. So she was never keen to go over and speak to the rabbi that was speaking to her grandfather. And the grandfather really wanted to meet the nice gentleman who they spoke, you know, a few words every day. So the rabbi suggested that, that he should say that he's a Mr. Schneerson, not Rabbi Schneerson. So the, the grandfather one day calls over, he's talking to the rabbi, this is again before the rabbi's rabbi, and says, come over, I want you to meet someone whose name is Mr. Schneerson. And when he says Mr. instead of rabbi, she's more calm, and they get to talking. And the Rebbe asks her what she's interested in. She says she's interested in science. And she likes to read a lot about science. And the Rebbe says, well, you have a favorite book? And she mentions a book. And she asks the Rebbe, have you read it? And the Rebbe says, no, I haven't read it. But I'll read it. And next time we talk, we can talk about it. 
And that was that. Three weeks later, she's visiting her grandparents again, playing outside. Her grandfather's sitting on the um, bench. And the Rebbe walks by, and she's very excited because, you know, Mr. Schneerson said she was going to read the favorite, her favorite book. And she's like seven years old. And she comes and she says, did you read the book? And he says, yes. And he read the book. And it was a book about these, these aliens who were like evil people trying to take over the solar system. And through this, you learn about the different planets because they describe all the planets as you, the aliens are taking over. Um, and the Rebbe starts talking to her about the book and he summarizes the book. He says, that, that's the book you're talking about? She says, yes. And he asks what she thought about the book and she, she asks what he thinks. And they have this little discussion about the book. Like as if the Rebbe has nothing else to do with his time. I mean, granted, probably didn't take enough to read the book, but the Rebbe is also a person who got stuck in traffic once and 30 years later said, I still haven't made up the time that I got stuck in traffic. Um, so, if, if you want to be able to appreciate the greatness of somebody, you have to see something specific. You have to value it. It has to be something that they feel is, they're being validated in, in your valuing of it, that it reflects back on how they experience themselves. Either they have already experienced themselves that way, or after you reflect back on it, they see that. That happens a lot in mentoring, right? That you value something for someone they have yet to value in themselves, but through your valuing of it, they realize that they deep down do value it. It brings out that potential. But if you just value something because you like it, and that's the end of the discussion, then it's objectification. Then it's just serving your needs. And they're not taking their subjective sense of it into things. So if you're going to now think about the greatness of God, what do you have to think about? something specific that I value about God that if God were to hear he would feel really does a good job of capturing something about himself that he values if you can find something like that then you're thinking about the greatness of God in a way that you're not objectifying him yeah that definitely could be but you would have to figure out not just what you see in it, but what he sees in it. I mean, if you use exactly those words, like I know words of God, you can see God in the right? The problem with using words is that it all goes back to the meaning that you put in the words, right? Because in his bindness, the wording isn't key, it's the conception and comprehension that matters, right? So, for instance, uh, you know, this is one of the things that happens if you're trying to, you, 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 there's this thing that you can do in a conversation which is called active listening, that you actually show that you're listening. One of the ways you can do that is to say back in your own words what you think the other person has been trying to convey to you. And you'll be surprised at how often you'll think you've got it just right and the person will correct you because you didn't get it exactly what they, like you, it's not what you said doesn't fit the meaning of their words, but that wasn't really what they were trying to say. So that goes back to the issue, right? There are many people, just do a quick test here. Um, what is the basic notion of the exodus of Egypt? On, like on the most basic, basic level. I actually said this in class a while ago. Like what's the basic thing about, that tells us about God? Okay, that is a thing. His mercy. Those are all, those are all good things. He loves us. That, that, that's actually the key thing. Right? The whole, like if you read the entire story, right, um, in fact, even the, 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 when Hashem comes and says, I, I took you out of Egypt, right? That's after he took them out of Egypt. And the whole taking them out of Egypt is understood as Hashem keeping his promise to the forefathers. Right? There's a whole backstory. I have a relationship with your grandparents, and therefore I actually care about you. And because I care about you, I'm redeeming you. 
right? So it's about this kind of, of attachment and loyalty, right? And the willingness to do anything for that, right? That, that, that. Some people say, like, some people say um, that it's about, like, how God is anti-slavery, which always makes me, like, think, have you read the rest of the Chumash? <laughs> like, I mean, like, he, that actually requires some creative apologetics. Uh, let's, the morality of slavery aside, but he doesn't clearly seem to have this absolute aversion to slavery because, I mean, read the rest of the Chumash, it's just not true, right? Who says it's not okay? Just because we don't do something, like we don't offer sacrifices, but that's not okay, it's just like technically we don't have the ability. And in fact, maybe we do practice slavery in certain cases. I happen to know of cases where slavery is practiced philosophically nowadays. Um, okay. So there's, there is a concept in Jewish law of someone who is born as a result of adultery or incest, and that's called a mamzer. A mamzer cannot be married to a, um, a Jew by birth. A mamzer can only marry another mamzer or a convert. But then their children are a mamzer. And when that mamzer can only marry a mamzer or a convert, and their children are a mamzer. And this process repeats for all of eternity. For all of eternity. So it's not cool to be a mamzer. Um, now, halachically, a, a slave does not have any lineage. So if a slave, if a Jew owns a slave, and then that slave is freed, then they're considered to be like a convert, basically. It's a little more, there's some technicalities. So even though, technically speaking, if a Jewish man owes a, owns a non-Jewish woman as a slave, they're not allowed to have children together. But that decree, that's a rabbinic decree. If the man is a mamzer, he's allowed to have children with his non-Jewish slave woman because then the children are not, are not halachically his. And then he can free them and he can have biological children who are not halachically his children and they're free to marry. And they can convert to Well, when, when he frees them, it's the same as halachic conversion, basically. And so then, so then the question, and the process for a woman converting and the, and the process for becoming a non-Jewish female slave of a Jew is actually remarkably similar. It, um, and so there have been cases where you have a mamzer and a woman who was converting to Judaism um, and a shidduch was proposed and instead of halachically her converting and getting married on a purely halachic level, um, she goes through the process of being his slave. And so then, which there's a whole technicality about this, which I'll tell you in a second, which means that there's, there's no marriage ceremony, there's no get if they get divorced or something like that, and that means what the children they have are not halakhically his, and so when he does the process of freeing them, they can free to marry whoever they want as a Jew. Um, and there's some debate about whether you can separate that aspect of slavery from the ability to boss the person around and, and own them as property. So there's some rabbinic authorities who say that there's two distinct aspects of slavery, and even though you can't own a person as property, you can still have this separately. And there is, but yeah, Jewish law is complicated. So there's a debate about it. Yeah, what? Anyway, but my point is, God is clearly not just clearly answer. But you have to, so you have to get to know it. Now, here's the thing: we've spoken of this in one class many times before. Um, 
if you if you start going around quoting the, the the written Torah without the oral Torah, what would that be like in a human relationship? You ever have those what people that quote your words back at you and use them against you? Like, but that's not what I meant. But that's what you said. But that's not what I meant. Like that is like that is like the ultimate objectification. You are just a speaker producing words. There's no like inner subjectivity of what you intended to convey. Yeah, have you ever had a conversation like that? Hopefully you were on the receiving end because at least you're, the, you're not the perpetrator there where you, where you just spit a person's words back and say, well, well you said this. So. Right. so whatever the greatness of Hashem is has to be something that we value, he values about himself and is something concrete, something specific. And when you are, an idea here is that the object of his brightness, the focus, the subject that a person is supposed to do this process of contemplation is on something like that. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you a question. Would a proper object of his brightness be that Hashem gives you um, pizza? He, he created pizza. When I was a kid, there was a, there was a song... Um, which was the Moda'ani song, which is apparently, I grew up later, it was a non-Jewish song that they just changed the English word, the words to. Um, but the, the lyrics were, thank you Hashem for kosher pizza and for creating swimming pools. Okay, yeah. Okay. Right. And for Pashkas, which is a candy company, and for Chachkas, which means little toys, and most importantly, for the snowstorms that keep us home from school, which don't happen too much in Israel. It was a Moda'ani song. That was just the lyrics. So is that an appropriate thing to... I ask you, is that an appropriate thing? Maybe for a six-year-old. Mm. Right. This is where it gets interesting, right? Is, is how do we... It, it, where is, we have to be able to find that overlap where it's something that legitimately I really should be val- able to value. And it's also something that Hashem values in himself. And now think about it. If you're a six-year-old and you're thanking Hashem for candy... And you're like thinking about how amazing is Hashem makes candy taste good and sunny days beautiful, right? Well, how do you, how do how do you how do you feel when a child appreciates little small things that you do? It's nice, right? Okay. If some random person starts appreciating small things that you do, a random adult, what does that feel like? It's a little weird, right? Why not? Oh, oh, but you added an important thing. You added an important thing, which is you invested in it. Oh, that becomes the question. That becomes, that becomes the question. That exactly becomes the question because we need to, right, we need to start considering, A, is this a kind of thing that is actually, your valuing is actually appropriate to you and you're, you, you know, it's not you just operating level of a six-year-old. But then equally the case is, are you valuing Hashem something that he himself values? And that does raise the question of like, does he feel like he's invested in it? Does he feel validated by that? And what, what we're going to learn is that in generally speaking, we, have, we break this down into three levels. Okay? There are going to be three levels of this, and they go sequentially, which means you can't value the higher level greatness unless you really appreciate the lower level greatness. Um, and, and what makes them different is what makes them different is not just because they're harder or easier, because the question is how much um, 
are you really focusing on it from, and how much of Hashem's own perspective or subjectivity is really part of this equation, part of this picture. Okay? Um, to use it, to use it, to use a, um, to use a slightly different, different example aside from the opposite of the ginger. Okay? Um, if I'm rushing to someone's house um, for Shabbos, and I don't want to seem like a total, like, you know, disrespectful person. So I rush into the bakery and grab the first thing I see because the bakery's about to close, right? And I, and, and, and I put it on the, and I bring it to their house. And it happens to be, Bashkacha Pratis, that it's like the, the, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, pick something, gingerbread cookies. And, you know, they, in this house, they love, like their favorite thing. I didn't know it was their favorite thing. I didn't intend to buy it. I just didn't want to look like a, ungrateful guest, right? And they start lavishing praise on me about how thoughtful it was in gingerbread cookies and we love gingerbread cookies. How did you know? That's a little bit awkward, right? Right? Because they're putting all of this stuff into as if that's where I was coming from when it's not true at all. So, so there really is this question like how much of what I'm appreciating is Hashem appreciating? How much are we on the same wavelength and how much not? And the rule this we're going to be is to see that this is not a black and white thing. It's not, you know, it's not one size fits all. There's, but there is, there is a, there is a, 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 there is degrees of growth in this. Yeah. Why shouldn't he value things about himself? Well, there's, 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 there's valuing something about yourself because you, you are able to perceive that, yeah, this is a good thing and it's true about me and that's wonderful. And then there's, like, my, my goal in life is to figure out what's the game we're playing as a society, as a group, and figure out how to climb to the top of that. And if I'm at the top, then other people are at the bottom. So, just give you a, a, a little example with with children. Yeah, if you have a child who grows up and always hears the message that whatever whatever is good about them, isn't really matter. Right? They shouldn't value anything about themselves. Right? They shouldn't be preoccupied with themselves. They're not as important. They're not significant. Whatever good qualities and characteristics that they have, they shouldn't um, they shouldn't appreciate them. They shouldn't. They shouldn't value them. They shouldn't feel validated when other people acknowledge them. Because they're, it's not about them. When that person grows up, what do you think they're going to spend the rest of their life doing as an adult? Trying to validate themselves. And at that point, are they going to have the sensitivity to realize that they're not the only person around? No. On the other hand, if you give a person to realize that there's value in them, and there's equally value in others, but it's not the same, it's different, and you have to value you for what you are and them for who they are. And as that gets deeper, you can develop deeper relationships with people. Then that's good, right? Now, have you ever tried to be, have a friendship with someone who values nothing about themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, like, it's weird. It's like there's, there's, like, there's like this emptiness. So you can't, if, if, if there's going to be, yeah, if Hashem is just the 
the big explanatory principle that explains why we have to do Torah and mitzvahs and creates the world and blah, 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 then Hashem, like, whatever, that's a concept. But if Hashem is someone that I'm going to have a relationship with, he better have some self-conception of who he is and what he's about and what he validates within himself that I can appreciate, that I can connect to him on. We have to, we have to be holding on the same page. It seems like we're equating our experience of reality to God. No, we're trying to. If we do it right, then we can appreciate the greatness of Hashem. If we do it wrong, yeah, then you're objectifying. That's the issue. But like, how how is it possible to do it right if we're so different? We're well, that's exactly what we're talking about. There's three levels to this. Okay. So, I'm going to say them outside the texts of the Tanya first, just to make them simple. Okay. Um, and this is just, this is, a, this is, this is um, as a math teacher of mine said, not rigorous. This is just a, to have a basic handhold. The first thing is our similarities. The second thing is our differences. And the third thing is himself. And I'm going to use an analogy first. Okay. Let's say um, someone's talking to you and they're saying stuff that makes a lot of sense. You understand where they're coming from. You really appreciate it. You know, they're, good, they're good at communicating. So what's happening is that there's a similarity between the way they're expressing themselves and the way you are picking up on them, the way you're receiving them, and so you're on the same page, right? How does that feel? It's pretty good. What if the person, um, what if the person is trying to explain themselves to you and they're doing a really bad job, and you're not getting them? And they keep trying to explain and you're not getting it. And they keep trying to explain and you're not getting it. How's that feel? So frustrating. Now, what would happen though if every time a person opened their mouth, you understood exactly what they meant? That you always felt like you just knew exactly where they were coming from. You're always on the same page. Yeah. At a certain point, it gets boring. At a certain point, it sounds like starts to feel like nobody's home because, like, it's just like there's nothing more to you than just like I mean, you're. In what way are you not me? In what way are you? Where's the mystery? Where's the where's the otherness to the other person? Right? So I equally want, or maybe not equally, but I also want, especially as the relationship goes deeper, I want to get a sense that I can't just figure you out ahead of time. And on a certain level, even after you've explained stuff to me, and even after you've had a conversation, I still have a sense that there's a level of yourself I can only infer, but I can't really, I don't really get. That I'm, that I'm aware of, but I don't really have a sense of it. That's what gives, that's what, that, that's what makes another person, um, a deeper person in your own mind. Okay. So, why can't that come first? Why can't that come first? Because of that frustration <coughs> element. If you feel like you're never getting somebody, then barring very special circumstances like you're already related or something like that, which is already kind of a similarity, then like, like well, where's the effort coming? If you just feel like every time you try and communicate with somebody, you're speaking past each other, at a certain point, what happens? 
You're not like, wow, look at this person. There's a deep mystery of what's going on there. You're like, I, 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 we have nothing. But if you do get along, you do have this appreciation of you know, where, where things make sense, where you get each other, where you, where you, you know, all of those things. Then, then there's a possibility to realize that, that whatever I'm understanding is just a little point that we overlap and there's other stuff beyond that that's, that's more intimate and more personal and more beyond my ability to really fathom because then they, I'm not them and I, I can't experience life exactly as them and therefore some things always remain not, yeah, there's a little element of mystery, a element of outside of me, an element that I value it but I don't really, I can't necessarily share in the experience. But that exists even when you're communicating with someone and completely understand each other because you're two different people so obviously there's that level of difference right but the question is whether that's part of your relationship or it's not part of your relationship so I'm going to give you an example and teach it should a teacher ensure that everything they say is understood by the students well in Chassidus it says you should make sure that does not happen it is imperative that a teacher ensure that some of what they say is not understood by the students are they respectful well, there's a few reasons. One of them is what gives the student the realization that they need to learn more, that there's more than they understand. Yeah, but imagine a class where a teacher gets in and starts talking and everything is not understood. There's no point of contact. There's no point at which you feel like you and the teacher, you're getting what the teacher's saying, the teacher understands where you're coming from. That doesn't happen. It's just the teacher's in their world and you're not there. How long does it take for people to tune out? Not long at all, right? But the more you feel like you're learning from the teachers, explaining things, you're understanding them, you get that the teacher sees that you're understanding, validates your understanding, that there is this place at which you're, you and the teachers, their mind, are holding in the same place, then what happens? You're able to then appreciate the, the, the depth of the things that you're not getting, that there's something worth there, there's something to investigate there. And therefore, it's, it's very important for a good teacher to always give a student a sense that no matter how much they're learning, there's always what they have not yet learned. That what they know is an indication is is also an a, a, a platform to appreciate what they don't know yet. Yeah. How do you balance that with the student and the teacher that you should not say something that is not immediately understood but you eventually Um Well, first off, I don't know if that's necessarily the right translation. I think it's, if I remember correctly, what it says is you're not supposed to say something that, that, sh that, that shouldn't be heard that will eventually be heard. Which, from what I remember, and not, this is going off of my memory, but I remember what that basically means is you shouldn't say something, and you shouldn't say something on condition that people are not going to say it, and then hope that it never gets out. Like, you can hope it never gets out, but if it really can't get out, then you shouldn't be saying it. Now, I could be wrong. There is, a, there is another thing which it says in Pirkei Abbas, which is that you have to be careful with your words that the students don't misconstrue them and take the wrong meaning. I'm not talking about that. But that, 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 that has to, right, so, so. I've never heard that interpretation of it. It makes sense that, like, what I said about the don't be that's just one translation. Yeah, I would have to look and see the commentator and see, like, what they said. I can't, I, but, I don't know. I'm not going to try and, like, reconcile something on the spot. 
Okay. Now, so the, the, I like to use the following analogy for this, which is that good teaching is like a meat cleaver. What? A meat cleaver. You all believe this, by the way. You just don't know. You just not, don't know that that's the right analogy. Now, a meat cleaver is meant to cut meat, right? Now, which part of the meat cleaver cuts the meat? Which part of the blade? The sharp, yeah, the edge. So then why don't, isn't a meat cleaver just like a really thin, sharp piece of metal? It's like not affecting What? Right, because, because even though the edge that does the cutting is a thin edge, what enables it to really penetrate is there's all this weight behind it. So we've all been in classes on any topic where you get the sense that the difference between you and the teacher is that the teacher read the material before you did. So literally what, they, what you're getting is what they have. And that doesn't penetrate. But then there's teachers in any topic where you get a sense that for every word they're saying, there's 20, 30 things they're not saying that inform that and you pick up on it. And occasionally once in a while they'll even throw in a comment just to reinforce that there's this added depth. And that, that makes what they're saying have more weight to it. And it also makes a person more curious of realizing there's more they have to learn, there's more they have to investigate, there's more they have to grow to be able to. And this is also true not just in teachings, it's true in relationships. If, if you know, has anyone here ever tried writing a story with dialogue in it? Mm-hmm. Okay, why is writing dialogue hard? That's true, but another a more reason that's specific to dialogue. <laughs> right, right. You don't want to say stuff that doesn't move the story along, right? But then you can run into the opposite problem, which is what you're saying actually sounds like a scripted text to just transmit information. But that doesn't sound like dialogue, because in dialogue there's the text and there's the subtext. There's what's being said and there's what's not being said, Right? So there's, it, there's always this element of that the basic connection is a level where, where, where there's similarity, where there's commonality, where, where the speaker and the listener are on the same page and understanding each other. What's being said is very clear. But then there's the stuff that isn't being said. There's stuff that's being withheld. And that, when, you, when, when a relationship moves to appreciating that element, it becomes deeper. So it's not one step in the next. It's like, oh, it's consistent. So, so, well, so, so it's because to... A, to to ever appreciate this element of what's dissimilar, you have to first appreciate and connect to what's similar. Now, it's not like it's not like um, you know, um, well you, it's not like you graduate and then you're done. It's in any aspect of any connection between two someones. There's always the point of similarity, the point of, of, of commonality, and that builds a basic level of connection. And then to that appreciation of that thing then allows for an appreciation of what's dissimilar. And then yes, you could then find something even deeper that's similar and then you repeat. Right? Right? It, 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 in other words, these are, these, are, these, are, these, are, these, are, these are patterns rather than like grades in school. And by the way, what's, what's, you know, as relationships progress, what was once something dissimilar has now become something similar. People grow, people evolve, people change. Okay? Which goes back to the issue about the candy. Right? If a child really thinks that God is amazing because candy tastes good, 
right? It is an entirely different thing than a 30-something-year-old thinking that the greatest thing about God is that candy tastes good. Right? Like, what is that? Like, this is actually a problem that many people who grew up religious have is that their sense of the greatness of God is stuck at the age of eight. But they themselves are 18, 28, 38. It's a problem. Some people, their awareness of another person's greatness got stuck at a particular thing. Yeah, it doesn't grow along with that. Okay? The th third thing and final thing is to realize, okay, and this is the hardest part, is that the fact that you have a relationship with them and that you appreciate them on whatever level doesn't really make them who they are. Like, they have, like, like, they are not defined by their relationship with you. Just at all. Like, that's not, that doesn't define them. Like, whatever you appreciate about them doesn't make them who they are. Let me give you just a simple thing. Do you want to marry a man who feels like he needs you? Do you want to marry a man who's perfectly fine without you? So what do you want? Something in the middle? Like, needs you a little bit? Or we need to go back to this issue of plurality, that there are two different issues here. You want to marry somebody that, if you're in his life, it's very important to him. But he has, but, but it's not that before you come into life, he has no life, and God, for you leave his life, he has no life, and therefore, he becomes entirely dependent on you for his whole being, because then what do you have? You just married a child. Right? In other words, that there's a level of autonomy to their being, so that, that what they value in themselves doesn't depend on you having a relationship with them. It doesn't depend on what you have in common, what you see, what you value. That's actually something very hard. Like with children, that's very difficult. Children don't have that. But the idea that yeah, I have my own life and my own being, and like I'm not going to collapse into a, a pile of rubble because like we're not getting along. I could be pained, it could bother me, it's not indifferent to it, but at the end of the day, what makes my life worth living isn't dependent on you or anything else. It's internal, it comes from within myself. To realize that, to realize that that's at the core of someone. So the first thing that you can appreciate in someone is stuff that you and they are in common on the same page. Then to the degree of that, you can appreciate what you have that's actually, what they have that's really different than you, that's other than you, that's alien you, that's mysterious. And then the thing is to realize that on some fundamental level, what makes them valuable isn't your relationship with them. They have their own value in their own life. And maybe they're sharing that with you, but at the end of the day, they're not dependent on, 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 on this in order to have a, a for lack of words, a meaningful life, a worthy existence. There's something deep and internal of their own. Now what happens if you encounter somebody that you can see that in them? That their life, what? You respect them, you admire them, especially if something comes you want to be, like all sorts of, like if you, really, if you really get that someone is like that, that they have stuff that really is in common, stuff that's different that you have the ability to appreciate, and that at the end of the day they have a, a, a depth to them that makes them have this, this autonomy, this integrity, this depth of who they are, that they're not dependent on anybody else, an authenticity to themselves. If you see that all in someone else, 
that, that usually is a pretty strong trigger to elicit all kinds of emotions that we have towards someone. Especially if they're not seeing, not just that you're seeing that in them, but they see that, those things in themselves. And so now the question is, how do we make sense of all that in terms of God? Which we'll do on Wednesday. And we'll get into more of the technical terminology in Tanya. Okay? At which point I'm going to use more, more concrete, specific it, things that relate specifically to God, um, not just human relationships. Yes.